Uh, my name is Kyle. I'm the pastor here. So if you're visiting with us today, thank you so much for uh, for that. As Jasper mentioned earlier, we're not the only church in town, so we're grateful when anybody chooses to worship with us. Thank you for being here. We are uh, currently in a sermon series called John, Seeing Jesus, Finding Life. Seeing Jesus, Finding Life. Now, I uh, I think this has been a, a good series so far, at least for me. <laughs> I, I've enjoyed preaching through this. I've enjoyed the things that the Lord has laid on my heart and just the way that I've grown in this. And so um, I, I'm grateful to preach uh, another sermon from this today. If you're kind of wondering why this is subtitled Seeing Jesus and Finding Life, uh, we stole that from John. <laughs> John in chapter 20, he tells us that the, the whole goal of, of, of his book was to tell some stories, some, give some of the account of Christ's life so that you may see Him, uh, and in seeing Him that you would find true life. And so we just said, hey, let's talk about what it means to see Jesus. Let's walk through John's book and, and see if he accomplished what he set out to do, because I think he did, and, and let's see how that would rest on us. So my prayer for you, my prayer for me, as I'm studying this and preaching this, as we're going through this in our home groups and all of that, my prayer is constantly, Lord, help us see you and find life. Amen? No matter where we're at in life, we all need a greater sense of the true life that we find in Christ. Amen? And so that's my hope for us today. Uh, and we'll <clears throat> dive into that here in a moment. But before we get to it, let's just pray and ask the Lord to help us. Amen? Father, we come before you today and we are grateful uh, for the opportunity to gather with the saints today. A bunch of people who were broken and messed up just like me. Uh, God, and we come here uh, in, in humility to worship our Savior. And so, Father, as we get ready to open up your word after we have uh, sang some songs and lifted our hearts to you. We want to open your word now. And we ask that you would speak to our hearts. Meet us right here, Jesus. Father, we pray that your Holy Spirit would uh, grow this word in us, help us to mature, to know you better. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. James 4.14 says this, and, I, and this is kind of the, the question on my mind or on my heart today as we get ready to dive into this. James 4.14 says, what is your life? He goes on to say, for you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Psalms says, man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. So here's my question for you. What do you, what do you think about those statements? And I'll just ask for a response in this way. If you think those statements are false, would you just raise your hand so we can know that you think life is more than a vapor? Go ahead, anybody. No? It's okay to be bold. All right? It, if you think they're true, go ahead and raise your hand. Life is but a vapor, right? Sure, it's true. It, we need to look no further than the last couple of weeks in the news and in our own city to know that uh, life is short, that, that life comes and it goes very quickly, often more quickly than we anticipate or than we hope for. We always hope for longer days. We hope for more days. But as I said, if you look, you can see disasters, you can see death, you can see decay throughout 
our world today, throughout our city today, and maybe even in your own life, you can experience that brevity of life uh, just so true to you today. So if you believe it's true, and we do, we all raise our hand and confess that we believe it's true, life is short, life is but a vapor, then the, the next thing we have to ask is, then doesn't the way you live now matter? It does, doesn't it? The way we live today matters. Of course it does. So often we consider life in years. We, we think of our life from one birthday to the next, right? If we look back across our life, it's hard to remember specific days unless they were just really special. So it's easy for us to think of life in terms of years or, or goals or, or plans that we've made, right? Like in five years, here's what I want my life to look like. I have a question. Has anybody's five-year plan ever looked like your five-year plan at the end of five years? Me either. What's up with that? Right? It, everything is constantly changing. It, it's constantly moving. Life it is just, it's, it's full of the unexpected. Chock full of it. And, and so I think that what happens is, is we'll go through unintentionally day after day, without ever considering, as we lay our head on our pillow at night, did I live today for the glory of God? Did I live today in a way that matters? If we say life now matters, the way we live today matters, then I think that's a question we have to ask ourselves at the end of each day. It's a question that has to be on our mind as we wake up each day. What am I doing today? How am I living today in such a way that will glorify God? Right? As believers, certainly we must ask this question. Our days are monotonous, they're mundane, and most of the time they're simply a means that are getting us closer to retirement. So many of us are longing for that day where we retire and all is bliss, so we think. <laughs> all the retired people in here said, nah, not true. And so I just think that life must be more. There must be more to life. There must be a better way to live. And so I ask this, what if your relationship with Christ caused you to think differently about your life? What if you said, I love Jesus in such a way that it's going to change the way I live today? It, it seems to be this thought that Moses had as he pins a prayer that's recorded for us in Psalm 90. He says, our lives last 70 years, or if we're strong, 80 years. And he says, even the best of them, those years, are struggle and sorrow. Indeed, they pass quickly and we fly away. Oh my gosh, isn't it so true? And so Moses, he says to the Lord, he says, teach us then to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. Amen. Teach us then to develop, or teach us then to number our days carefully so that we may develop wisdom in our hearts. In other words, what Moses is saying is what we feel. He's saying life is short, and the way to make the best of it is to number your days, not your years. It's to count today as the day that we're in and the day that we're living and the day that we are to fully experience and not to worry about tomorrow, as Christ says. So to consider each day an opportunity to develop wisdom. It just simply means that we consider each day an opportunity to learn to live by the right priorities. 
praise God for His grace in this, teaching us how to live each day by the right priorities. And so, enter John the Baptist. John the Baptist is perhaps the very definition of a life spent well. Though it's believed he only lived to be about 29 years old, John was chosen by God to be the last prophet announcing the coming Messiah. He spent his latter years living in the wilderness, wearing camel skins, and eating locusts and wild honey. How's that for a retirement plan, right? I I can imagine if you eat a locust, you would have to dip it in honey, right? I mean, you're not just going to eat a locust. That's disgusting. So maybe if it's dipped in honey, it, 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 at least the crunch comes with a sweet flavor instead of a bitter flavor. That's, that's all I can imagine. So anyway, it, it couldn't be good without the honey. Let's move on. <laughs> John preached repentance. John preached uh, repentance from sin because there was one coming who was greater than him, as we saw in John chapter 1, if you'll remember that, And so he baptized people as a way of showing that these people have repented of their sins. As a result of this, he gained followers and disciples, but he also gained some enemies, as you might could imagine, namely King Herod. King Herod visited John one day to hear him, and John condemned him because King Herod was laying with his brother's wife. I don't have to explain to you what that means. This led King Herod to, show, uh, to, to throw John into prison. He didn't like this, but he knew that he couldn't have John killed because John was well-respected by the people in that day, and so it could cause an insurrection. And so this never completely satisfied uh, Herod's brother's wife, whom he was laying with. Her name was Herodias, or Herodias, however you want to say it. She wanted John dead. She didn't like the way John had come in between uh, the good thing that she had, and so she got her opportunity. One day, John was hosting, uh, while John was in prison, sorry, Herod was hosting this party, invited all these people to it, and Herodias' daughter came in, and she danced for Herod and his guest. Her dancing so pleased the guest that Herod told her, whatever you ask, I will give to you. He was glad that his guests were pleased. He was happy to reward the girl for what she had done. And so whatever you ask, I will give to you. So she goes and she consults her mother. Her mother says, I want John's head on a platter. So Herod, not wanting to go against his word and be embarrassed by his guest, or in front of his guest, he commands it to be done. John is beheaded. What a life. What a life, right? I mean, though John experienced many trials and times of doubt, he he lives life well. He lives it to the full. And we look at it, and and it's hard. I understand. It's hard in our Western culture lens to look at John the Baptist's life and say, that is a life well spent. It's hard for us to do that. Because it looks like, what a waste. In the wilderness with camel skins and locusts and wild honey, telling people about the Lord, only to say to the king, hey, what you're doing is wrong, and the king throws you in prison and eventually has you murdered. It's easy for us to look at that and say, I'm not so sure I want that life. We must understand that the call to come to Christ is always a call to come and die. It's a call to come and die to our flesh. This is what John models for us 
so well. And though he experienced great times of doubt, he lived life well. Remember what Jesus says about him. As Jesus is remembering John the Baptist, he says, among those born of women, no one is greater than John. So what is it about John that caused Jesus to say this? I I think our text today, and then a little bit of the story that I've shared with you from John's life, which we pick up uh, through through all four of the Gospels, coupled with uh, those things, I think his life provides some details for us on what it means to live life well. And so for our text today, we get to see kind of the end or the final days of John's life. And and I've got some things that I want us to take from that. Uh, But first, let us read our text for today. John 3, 22 through 36. He says, After this, Jesus and his disciples went to the Judean uh, countryside, where he spent time with, with them and baptized. John was also baptizing in Anon near Salem, because there was plenty of water there. People were coming and being baptized since John had not yet been thrown into prison. So this was right before that account. Then a dispute arose between John's disciples and a Jew about purification. So they came to John and they told him, Rabbi, the one that you testified about, talking about Jesus, and who was with you across the Jordan is baptizing, and everyone is going to him. (laughs) Doesn't sound familiar, right? Somebody else is getting all the notoriety. Somebody else is having something take place that looks like a greater work than what you're doing. And so we begin to think, hey, that's not right. They shouldn't be over there. They should be here with us. And I love the way John responds to this. John responded. He said, no one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said, I am not the Messiah. You remember that in John chapter 1? He says, I'm not the Messiah. I'm not him but I've been sent ahead of him. He who has the bride is the groom. He's talking about Christ and his church. But the groom's friend who stands by and listens for him rejoices greatly at the groom's voice. If you've ever sat at a wedding and you hear the groom and the bride standing there together and the groom recites his vows and just the joy that wells up in everybody, you can't watch a wedding and not be happy, right? Not between two believers anyway right? I mean, it's a thing to admire. It's a thing to be excited about. And so John says, so this joy of mine is complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. Amen. 31, he goes on. He says, the one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth is earthly and speaks in earthly terms. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, and yet no one accepts his testimony. The one who has accepted his testimony has affirmed that God is true. For the one whom God sent speaks God's words, since he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hands. Verse 36, the one who believes in the Son has eternal life, but the one who rejects the Son will not see life, Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. So I, I think that John lived life well by being, number one, he was humble. John was incredibly humble, and he's modeled this throughout our experience and John with him. Jonathan Edwards says, 
great Puritan, he says, we must view humility as one of the most essential things that characterizes true Christianity. Amen. A quality that so blatantly characterized John's life, a truly humble person will, will never have to tell others how humble they are, right? You just notice when you meet someone who's humble, you're like, man, that, that's a humble dude. Right? We, we've all had these stories where we brag on somebody because of their humility. It's like, I, I just can't believe that, that he's doing that or that she's doing that or that they're living that way. They're so humble, right? And you'll never hear that person brag about that. John's humility is as much on display here as it was in chapter 1 when we first encountered him. He starts by saying that acceptance from man is a special gift from God, and so we can't find fault when others have more acceptance than us. He says it this way. He says, no one can receive anything unless it's been given to him from heaven. He's saying, no, I, I have the followers I have because that's what's been given to me from heaven. He also continues his original, original message with, I'm not the Messiah. He tells his followers that he is not the bridegroom, but he's a friend at the wedding who hears the, the bridegroom's voice and rejoices. And in one of my favorite verses to, to remember and just keep on my heart, he says, he must increase, but I must decrease. He must increase, but I must decrease. And here's what I don't want you to miss. Christ will never increase in your life until you decrease in your life. There's just not room for both of you. There's not room for your ego and for Christ. You can't serve yourself and serve the Lord at the same time. It doesn't work that way. And so it has to start with us decreasing. A frame of mind like this is the highest degree of grace to which a mortal man can attain, says J.C. Ryle. 1 Peter 5 says to clothe yourselves with humility because God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So what's the way to receive grace? Humility. It's coming to the Lord saying, I'm not the Messiah. I, I can't save myself. I can't save anyone else. I, I need you. The Bible says the promise here is if that person receives grace from God. But the one who does not consider God in prayer, the one who does not consider God in his or her life, but just simply lives, you know, sees the day kind of thing, like this is, this is about me, the one who lives that way, God will resist that person. Lord, let us not make our final breath as one who is being resisted by the Father. Amen? Let us come to Him humbly. The way to true honor is to be humbled. We often think it's the other way. It's to be exalted in this life. But God is clear. The way to true humility, the way to true, sorry, the way to true honor is to be humble. It's to walk in humility. And so though John starts with saying, I must decrease, I think humility empowers us to do two things. So humility is not this idea of being some weak, feeble person curled up in the fetal position in your room, not wanting to go anywhere. That's not it. Humility brings great power. Humility is being honest about your weakness so that Christ can replace your weakness with His strengths. Amen? 
It's also knowing that our strengths are limited unless they are grounded in Christ. And so I think humility empowers us to do two things. One, it empowers us to be honest. Humility empowers us to be honest. Listen, when you know yourself and you know Jesus the Messiah, Jesus as your Messiah, as your Savior, it should be difficult for you to think too highly of yourself. Near impossible. Do you understand what I'm saying? When you know your heart, how nasty you are, and you know Jesus and how great He is and what He's done for you, it should be impossible for you to think too highly of yourself. That truth makes it easy for us to proclaim, I am not the Christ. I'm not. Like, like that's me talking. I am not Him. Whatever you hope to gain from me, I pray that you'll redirect that to the Lord because I will fail you over and over again. Why? Because I'm not perfect. He is. I am weak. I am selfish at, selfish at times, and Christ is selfless. He, he's, he's the great I am. He's the one we run to. Amen? Honesty must begin with humility. Not only will you be honest in your evaluation of yourself, not thinking that you're better than you really are, but you'll find it necessary to be honest with others. This is what I mean by it empowers you. Humility empowers you. It, it gives you a, a grace and a, and a spirit about yourself, a, a demeanor about you to go to others and be honest with them. And they'll receive you well. One of the hardest things for me, and praise God I haven't had to do this much, but I'll, just, I'll be honest with you, one of the hardest things about being pastor it is going to someone who is just living a selfish life of sin like I have and, and, and telling them, man, what, what are you doing? What, what's going on? Why are you making these decisions? What's taking place here? But doing it in a way that's winsome. Because it's easy to get frustrated with people. It's easy to think, man, what's wrong with you? Why in the world are you acting this way? And, and that's just not winsome. That's not becoming. That's not Christ-like. It's okay to be truthful, but Paul says to speak the truth in love. And where you can't speak the truth in love, you will not be heard, I assure you. Yelling at someone about your point or about your stance, or about in, they're not going to hear you. Do you listen when someone yells at you? Do you? How many conversations have you had with someone that really changed you because somebody yelled at you, berated you over the way you thought about something? For me, it's zero. Right? Like I'm not listening to anybody yell at me. We can sit, we can talk. Gladly. I'll argue my point, you can argue your point. The moment you start yelling and get passionate, I'm done. <laughs> it's like I'm not talking to you right now. This isn't, this isn't fruitful. Anyway, a little sidetrack, a little bonus for being here today. So you'll find it easy to be honest with others as John was honest with Herod. When you experience the freedom that comes when the gospel transforms you from proud sinner to humble saint, 
it is natural, or it should be natural, and if it's not natural to us, we need to question, has it really taken root in me? But it should be natural for us to want to tell others about that same freedom in Christ. Right? When you, when you go from condemned sinner, dead in sin, to, to freed saint, alive in Christ, shouldn't it be natural for us to want to tell others about that? Share that with others? A, a selfish Christian should be an anomaly. I think it is an anomaly. I don't think there's any such thing as a, 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 just a totally selfish Christian. That There has to be something in us that's saying, I don't want to live this way anymore if you're truly saved. If the Spirit is alive in you, you'll be saying, you'll be walking through life saying, it's not about me. I'm laying myself down. It's not about my views on things. It's not about my rights on things. My rights are in heaven. My citizenship is in heaven. I will lay myself down for the good of humanity and the glory of Christ now, today. How can I do that? It has to become that, guys. If it doesn't, we, we look just like the world, but we say we love Jesus. That's the way the world lives. That's why Christians find it so easy to live that way or find it so difficult to, to go against that grain because it's natural for us to want to be about ourselves. And like you at one time, others will only understand their need for a Savior when they realize that they're not Him. And so honest evaluation of yourself leads you to be humble. It leads you to be approachable. It leads you to be able to speak the truth and love with others and show them, here's where we need Christ. Here's where Christ meets you right where you're at. Amen? In other words, when we see that their sin separates, when they see that their sin separates them from God, that's when they'll run to Christ. Which means... We'll need to anticipate difficult conversations. Not only with others about their lives, but from others about our lives. Are you approachable? Does your, are you humble enough to be approached by a dear brother or sister in the Lord who would like to talk to you about the way you're living? Maybe raise some awareness to something you don't see. Man, that's tough. It's easy for us to say, man, I got no problem telling somebody else how they're sinning. <laughs> but don't come to me telling me how I'm sinning. Man, let us not be that way. Let, let us not be that way. And the wise person will listen when those conversations happen. Proverbs 12 says this, this is a fool's way is right in his own eyes, but whoever listens to counsel is wise. So humbly, honestly speak the truth about your need for Jesus and others need for him to win. I just want to insert this into your thoughts. When do you do that? As you go along your way. This is what I mean by living every day like it matters. Like maybe it's your last. As you interact with your children, as you interact with your spouse, as you interact with your coworkers, as you go along your way, as you're coaching a t-ball team, Lord, help you if you do. As you're, as, you're, uh, as you're teaching your class, as you're, you're managing people at work, whatever your life looks like, as you're sitting at home as a stay-at-home mother and you wonder, does my life really matter? It does. 
It does. God has gifted you treasures there to disciple, to speak to. You see, no matter where we're at, we can be found faithful with humility. We can be found faithful in the way that we live humbly for others' good and we lay our own pride down. Amen? And it's just as you go along the way. It's in whatever you do. Lord, help me to do this better. Pray as you go. Think about it as you go. That's all I'll say about it for now. B, the B part of this, humility empowers us to be courageous. Humility empowers us to be courageous. I'll spend a little less time on this, but here's what I mean by this. You can speak humbly, honestly, and courageously. It's okay to do that. It, it, again, humility is not I'm, I'm clammed up and I think I'm some awful person. It's that I know I'm some awful person, so I need Jesus, and that empowers me to live under the strength of Christ and not my own. I, I'm trusting in Him. John knew that there could be or would be consequences for speaking against Jewish authorities, especially King Herod. Yet he spoke anyway. The humility found in Christ teaches us to value nothing more than we value the approval of God Himself. Lay me down. Let me decrease, Lord, so that you can increase in my life. It's not about me. It's about Christ. That empowers you to be courageous. That makes you courageous. When you live for an audience of one, you're not worried about what others think. You're not worried about how offensive you may be, unless you're being offensive, right? That's where humility comes in. But sometimes just the gentle message of Christ is offensive. In fact, it's always going to be offensive. It always has been. I'll use an example that I first heard from a guy named Chandler. The Apostle Paul knew both humility and courage so well. If you read through Paul's letters, you just encounter this. You read through about his life. The Apostle Paul knew humility so well. He says, I am the chief of sinners, right? I'm the greatest sinner among you all. But he knew courage so well, too. It was the saving grace of God that caused him to become a missionary to all the ends of the earth. The humility that he knew empowered him to be courageous. And in his courage, he became essentially untouchable. They would come to him and they would say, if you keep preaching this message, we're going to kill you. And Paul would look at them and he said, well, that's okay. To die is gain. I'm convinced that to be apart from this body is to be present with Christ. And they're like, oh, okay. And it, well, well, we'll release you then. We won't, we're not going to kill you. We'll release you. He says, great, to live as Christ. I'll keep preaching. It's better for me to keep preaching the gospel to people. And they're like, well, then we'll throw you in prison again. He's like, go ahead. At midnight, I'm going to get with my buddy Silas, and we're going to begin to sing some hymns, and an earthquake is going to fall in this place. My shackles are going to be broken, and I'm going to convert all your guards in the process. And they're like, what do we do with this guy? Paul was untouchable. It was amazing the way he lived. He realized that I must decrease so that Christ can increase in this world. Jonathan Edwards says this. Don't miss this. Jonathan Edwards says this about humility. He says, Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's reach as humility. Hmm. Praise God. Nothing sets a person so much out of the devil's 
reach as humility. When you're humble, you're untouchable. You're courageous, but you're untouchable. When you walk in the humility that we have in Christ, following his example that we see so beautifully written out in Philippians 2, that Christ gave up what he had in heaven to come and dwell as a servant among us. That's the humility we model. That's the humility we pray takes us over. Let me give up my rights in America, on this earth, whatever that looks like, so that Christ can increase. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. The more increasingly hostile the culture gets towards Christianity, the brighter your light will shine, and that's a good thing. The more people are comfortable and are able to be comfortable as nominal Christians, that's a bad thing. It's, it's okay for there to be pressure from culture. There's always been pressure from culture in Christianity. There, there's a great book, Church History 101. It's real short. It's easy to read. It's like three bucks on Kindle. If, if you haven't grabbed it, if you're unaware of what church history looks like, grab that. The greater the oppression from the world, the greater the church sells in the world. Jesus meant when he said, when he said, the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And we get bent out of shape about our rights and about things here that in all of eternity don't matter as far as we're concerned. You'll shine a brighter light when you let go of your political views and you embrace Christ. I promise you. When, when you don't lead with partisan topics, and you lead with the love and the grace and the mercy of Christ Jesus, you'll win more people to Christ. I promise you. And you'll be winsome in your behavior. People will want to talk to you. They'll want to know, how can you live at peace in a world that is full of anything but peace? Jesus. I'm not tied to this party politics. I'm not tied to what's in the news today. I weep and I mourn over those things. I pray for those things, but I'm asking constantly, Lord, how can I affect the people in my day today? That's what matters. That's what matters. The second thing we see is that John lived life well by being faithful. This one's, this one's not long at all. From the beginning message of repent and be baptized because there's one who is coming who is greater than I to these last days that we see here where John is saying, I must decrease so that Christ can increase. And then in his arrest and his murder, John the Baptist was faithful with his life and with his message. It was the same message from the beginning as it was at the end. It was the same life in the beginning as it was at the end, only more in love with Christ. I believe it was the work of the Lord in his life that led to his humility. I think humility leads to faithfulness. Humility leads me to understand that I need Christ more than anything in this world, and so I'm going to remain faithful to him. I'm going to pursue him no matter what. It was a right understanding of the majesty of Christ that led him to live life so well. About our text today, J.C. Ryle points these things out. He says, John uses one striking expression after another to convey a correct idea of the majesty of Christ. He speaks of him as the bridegroom of the church, as him that comes from above, 
as him whom God has sent, as him to whom the Spirit is given without measure, as him whom the Father loves, and into whose hands are given all things. Ralph says to believe in him is everlasting life, and to reject him is eternal ruin. Each one of these statements show the size and scope of John's spiritual growth. He paints an incredible picture of the majesty of our Savior, Jesus. In order to be faithful with each day, not just with your life, think about your life in days. This is why Moses said it's wise for us to think about, to consider the days of our lives. In order for us to be found faithful with each day, we must seek in life and in death to hold the same views as John of Jesus. We we can never make too much of Jesus. Our thoughts about the church, this church, our thoughts about our jobs, our thoughts about our marriages, our thoughts about our kids, our thoughts about all of life, whatever, whatever consumes your thoughts today, those things may easily become too high But as Ryle points out and says so well, he says we can never have too high thoughts about Jesus. We can never love him too much. We can never trust him too completely. We can never lay too much weight upon him. We can never speak too highly in his praise. Friends, Christ alone is worthy of all of of the honor that you can give to him. He alone is worthy. He he will be all in heaven. On that final day, he will be everything. Everything will be under the reign of Christ. And so I say, let us then see to it that he is all in our hearts here on earth. That, That nothing takes the place of Christ in our hearts each day, each moment, each hour. But let Christ reigns supreme. Let him increase, and for him to do so, I must decrease. That's the key to life. That's the key to a life well lived, and a life well lived is marked by humility and faithfulness, a humility and a faithfulness that we find day after day. Teach us to number our days so that we grow in wisdom. Amen? That same Christ which led John to a life marked by humility and faithfulness is available to you today. Did you know that? Let's let's try to drown out the distractions. Let's try to hone in on this. That same Christ which moved John and, and caused him to live a life of humility and faithfulness, that Christ is available to you today. He's available to you today. John declares the one who believes in the Son has eternal life. You you know what the word has means? It it means that you have it. It means to take hold of it. It means that it's yours. In other words, you don't believe, and then in believing, like you're you're just kind of hopeful. It's like, okay, I believe. Now I'm just not sure the way the rest of my life's going to go, and that maybe by chance I'll make it to heaven. No, no. If if you believe, it says you have eternal life. It's yours. You possess it. The the word has means to have. In other words, you don't believe, you don't hope. And then hope, it's yours as soon as you believe. Belief in Christ brings immediate pardon from your sin and immediate peace with God because of Christ's death, not because of you. 
Not because you're great in some way. Remember, you're decreasing. Christ is increasing. It's because He is mighty. It's because He gave His life where you could not. He did something that you can't do. And this is the most glorious privilege of the gospel. That anyone who believes in the Lord Jesus will be saved. By Christ, all that believe are at once justified from all of their sin. The sad reality to this is, is if heaven is very near to the believer, hell must be very near to the unbeliever. It's just the weight of this. It's the weight of what John leaves us with in chapter 3. The greater the mercy that Jesus offers, the greater will be the guilt of those who neglect it and reject it. But the one who rejects the Son will not see life, he says. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. If you remember last week, John says, those who do not believe are condemned already. As those who are in the darkness. You are already in the dark. At belief, you are brought into the light. So the one who rejects the Son will not see life. Instead, the wrath of God remains on him. I say, unbeliever and believer alike, let us receive Jesus today. Amen? Would you stand to your feet this morning?